1 Corinthians chapter 15, the whole uh, lengthy chapter, is the Apostle Paul's and the New Testament's greatest statement on the resurrection of Christ. There, Paul argues passionately that this event is the linchpin of our faith. He does not shrink from the fact that Christianity rises and falls with the bodily resurrection of Jesus. If the resurrection is false, the whole fabric of our faith unravels. If Jesus is not raised, Paul says, we are lost. Our faith is vain. We are the most pitiable of men. Yet if it is true, and Paul argues vigorously that it is, there is jubilant hope for the world. This morning, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8 of this glorious chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. Now, the situation in Corinth is important to note briefly. The Corinthians had believed the gospel, but they did so in a very skewed and a very imperfect fashion. Largely, probably because of their cultural baggage, they denied, or at least some of them did, that there was a future bodily resurrection. The immortality of the soul was fine. The Greeks believed that. Corinth was a Greek city. But the resurrection of the body was unnecessary. It seems possible that the Corinthians interpreted the resurrection of Christ in some spiritual, non-bodily, mystical fashion. Who needs the body? We're spiritual people. They seem to have believed, like a lot of Christians in our day believe, that the great Christian hope is dying and going to heaven. But that is not the great hope of the church. The great hope is an embodied hope. The resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. And so Paul begins with the bodily resurrection of Christ and this text is a reminder both of the centrality of the resurrection but also of the compelling evidence for it. And so we'll make two main points this morning. The gospel and its witnesses. First the gospel, second the witnesses. First then the gospel. Here Paul speaks of the gospel as something past, present, and future. The gospel in the past is spoken of in the second half of verse 1 as that which also you received. They had received the gospel it's the defining event of their past. It's the reason for their existence as a church. It's the ground of Paul's appeal to them now. Notice, the gospel is received. It's handed down from generation to generation. We have open hands and we receive it. We can keep it. We can guard it. But we can add nothing to it. Nothing. And we can take nothing from it. It's received. And it is never left behind. We never outgrow it. And that means the gospel is also a present 
reality. You see that at the end of verse 1. Paul calls it the gospel by which or in which you take your stand. Right now, this morning, in the present moment, we stand in and by the gospel. The good news of the grace of God in the risen Christ. Nothing more, nothing less. We easily forget this. Churches easily forget this. Whole traditions easily forget this. We secretly believe that we stand in or by something other than or in addition to the gospel. Usually some aspect of our performance as Christians. The church receives the gospel. And down to this very hour, she stands in the gospel. And this gospel is also our future. In verse 2, Paul says that speaking of the same gospel, by which you are saved if you hold firmly to the word that I preach to you. So the gospel is our salvation and it will be our salvation in the future if we cling to it. And so this gospel envelops, right? It defines, it upholds, it sustains the church. It is by this gospel that the church conquered the Roman Empire. They didn't even have websites. They had none of the things that we are convinced in our day are critical to the church's success, but they did have the gospel. And the empire fell and we got Western civilization. This gospel and only this gospel is where the Apostle Paul is maniacally focused. You can see that in the first part of verse 3 where he says the gospel he delivered and they received is of first importance. There, there's a wonderful uh, journal on, on religion and public life called First Things. And, and the late editor, uh, a, a, a priest named uh, Richard John Niehaus, he famously said, the first thing that must be said about politics is that politics is not the first thing. So if you take politics out of that sentence and put in anything else except the gospel, the sentence still stands. The first thing about everything that's not the gospel is that that thing is not the first thing. The gospel is first, primary, decisive. Everything else is secondary. And that brings us to the content, the simple content which Paul begins unpacking in verse 3. Christ died for our sins. This is clearly an ancient and probably the most ancient creedal statement of the church. Paul wrote this, these words here in about 54 A.D., and here, here he is citing material which predates that by some time. You'll notice in the text he says that he received this material from the church's tradition. You can see that in verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you. I delivered to you what was handed to me. So these words here on Christ's death 
and his resurrection are earlier than all the written Gospels. They probably stem from the Jerusalem church sometime before 40 A.D. So the Gospel, which is of supreme importance, is first of all this. Christ died for our sins. And the significance of the word for is that Jesus died as our substitute in our place, bearing our judgment. And this death was according to the Scriptures, Paul says here. Now this doesn't exclude the idea that various texts like Isaiah 53, for instance, are in view. But Paul's primary meaning here is that the whole Old Testament, the thing in its entirety, points to Christ and His death. All the promises to the patriarchs, the exodus, the law, the priesthood, the sacrificial system, the witness of the prophets, the exile and restoration of Israel, these all point to Christ and His death. He died for our sins according to the whole warp and woof of the Old Testament Scripture, not simply according to a text here or a text over there. The next phrase unpacking the content of the Gospel in verse 4, and that He was buried. This serves to confirm the fact and the reality of the death which took place. He didn't just swoon or appear to die. He really died. A real corpse was laid in the tomb. It's important for the Corinthians and for many moderns, frankly, to get the physical nature of this so that they can understand the nature of the bodily, physical resurrection to follow. Death, burial, and finally, resurrection. Christ is risen. This is, as we have said, the hinge. The text says He was raised on the third day. The reference to the third day refers to a number of Old Testament texts which speak of deliverance or salvation coming on the third day. Hosea 6 speaks of a third day restoration. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. If you start on Friday when Jesus was crucified, the sixth day of the week, the sixth day is day one, the seventh day is day two, and the eighth day, the first day of the new week, is the third day. The third day signifies new creation. In Leviticus 23, the first fruits of the harvest are waved before the Lord on the day after the Sabbath. The first day, the eighth day, or in this context, the third day. And Jesus' resurrection means He is the first fruits of the harvest. So His being raised on the third day is also, the text says, in accordance with the Scriptures. So Paul's just given us the content of the Gospel. The irreducible core. The non-negotiable stuff. And it's very simple. Don't get bored with it. This is what you've received. This is that in which and by which you stand, and by which you are saved, this is of first importance. 
Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised. All in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel. And that brings us to the second major point, the witnesses. The witnesses serve here as confirmation. Quite powerful confirmation, I think, to the historical reality that Jesus Christ was raised. The risen Christ was seen, verse 5 tells us, by Cephas, or Cephas, the, the Aramaic name for Peter. Cephas there in the text is Peter. The tradition of the resurrection stems from the Jerusalem church. And its leader, Peter, saw him with his own eyes. It's very important to get this fact. There is no gap between the resurrection and the witnesses to the resurrection. They are there at the beginning. And then he was seen, the end of verse 5 says, by the twelve. The Gospels record a few different appearances to the twelve. There's a number of them. In Luke 24, Jesus appears to the twelve and the text tells us, that many, many others were present. Acts chapter 1 says he appeared to the apostles over 40 days offering many convincing proofs. Paul does not tell us which appearance this is, but his point is simple. In addition to Peter, the head of the Jerusalem church, he appeared to the rest of the college of apostles. But we should note here that in at least one instance, if not more, the twelve were accompanied by not a few, but many others. Paul's assembling here a great cloud of resurrection witnesses. And we get this utterly fascinating piece of information in verse 6. Look at verse 6 in the text. This appearance is not recorded in the Gospels, but it was obviously well known, and it was known to Paul. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Now that's a staggering piece of information, I would say. It tells us, first of all, there were probably numerous appearances that we may not even know about. Notice that this appearance to over 500 occurred at once, at one time. Now, a single person or two or maybe three, you know, can fall into a trance or have a mystical vision and be mistaken. The claim here is that 500 people simultaneously saw the risen Lord. And this is virtually irrefutable evidence. To deny this evidence, one would either have to call Paul a liar and we'll get to that in a minute. Or one would have to believe in some sort of synchronized, ecstatic delusion, seizing 500 people at once. So we have not only Peter, not only the 12, not only the many others who were with the 12 on at least one occasion whom Luke mentions, Paul doesn't mention those here, not only the women whom Paul doesn't mention here, but in addition to that group of at least 15 or 20 or 40 or 50 people, we have not 500, 
but over 500 additional eyewitnesses. And just to drive the point home, that Paul and the early church actually knew these 500 plus people, he gives us a crucial biographical detail. It's in the middle of verse 6. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. That's actually quite amazing. Paul says, I know the ones, roughly speaking, who've died and the ones who remain. I basically know the proportions. I know the 500 people. I know about how many are still living and about how many have died. So most of these 500 people are alive. And they're known to the broader church. You can go talk to them. Some have died, but the greater part remain. Go interview them. If you have any doubt about the bodily resurrection, you Corinthians, go ask. The information is public. It's first-hand eyewitness testimony. They know these people. But Paul is not done. In verse 8, he says, after that, now notice, just as an aside, notice, Paul not only knows about these appearances of the risen Christ, he knows about their sequence. Now, he's not just saying, look, there were a bunch of appearances. Jesus appeared to a lot of people. He knows their sequence. First Peter, then the twelve, after that, over 500, and after that, James. You know, this stuff was really pretty important to the early church. You know, they kept notes. They remembered. They knew what happened. They knew who these witnesses were, and they knew the sequence in which they were visited by the risen Christ. Now, this James is a very important witness. He's the Lord's half-brother, later to become a key figure in the Jerusalem church. But you might remember that Jesus' family thought he was mad. It'd be tough to have Jesus as your older brother, I think. Uh, And we are told expressly that James did not believe him during his earthly ministry. James didn't believe him. So here's a man who was inclined against Jesus, who was part of a group of people who thought Jesus was frankly out of his mind. And he later becomes a witness to the resurrection. The second half of verse 7 continues with this sequential language, it says, then, then, to all the apostles. Now, this is a different group than the twelve. The term apostle is sometimes restricted to the twelve, but it's often used more broadly of those, like, like the men mentioned here, who saw the Lord and were commissioned to preach the gospel. This is another group. Sent ones, apostles. So, Paul has piled up perhaps some 600 plus witnesses. And that's a conservative number at this point. There's at least six, if not 700 or more witnesses that are alluded to. But there's one more witness to be named. And it's Paul himself, verse 8. Last of all, 
as to one abnormally born, he appeared also to me. Now, Paul is referring, of course, to his Damascus Road experience, an event which is recorded in Scripture five times, which means that Paul had many chances over many years to recant his story or to reconsider it or to psychologize it away. Maybe I was dreaming. But he doesn't do any of that. He is finally, like many in this list, martyred for his testimony to the risen Christ. And Paul considers his experience to be a real post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. He appeared to me. He puts himself on this list. He says, the encounter I have with the risen Christ is on a par with Thomas sticking his fingers in the nail prints. It's an objective encounter in space and time. Now, in closing, I want to say a word about this last witness, Paul, since he's the one providing this astonishing catalog. I feel like I know Paul. I'm a big Paul fan, as some of you know. I feel like I've spent my whole adult life wrestling with him. And let me tell you, he's a daunting conversation partner. <clears throat> now, this, this roster of witnesses doesn't depend on Paul. All of it's available from other sources. Even in the case of the over 500, it's clear this information is not Paul's alone. Yet I want to say something about this witness. Paul is an undeniably historical figure. No one questions Paul's historical existence. Now, there are crackpots who occasionally, usually this around this time of year, will question Jesus' historical existence, though no responsible scholar doubts that. But apparently no one bothers to take the time to question Paul's historical existence. You know, he, he was just a misogynist who destroyed Jesus' pure religion of love and things like that. But no one doubts Paul's historical existence. And so here we have a man who the record shows hated and persecuted Christians and sought to have them killed. He has a conversion encounter with the risen Christ where there are witnesses standing by him, by the way. He records the encounter five times. Records it. He's utterly transformed and he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles and eventually, according to reliable tradition, is beheaded in Rome as a martyr for the faith. What do we know about him? Well, what we know, we know from his letters. He wrote 13 letters preserved in the New Testament. And even the most critical, acidically skeptical scholars accept six or eight or ten of these letters. And 1 Corinthians is really not in doubt by anybody responsible. We know Paul, real person, historical person, wrote these words, wrote 1 Corinthians. So here he is. Real history, real letters to real churches. What do these letters tell us? about Paul? Well, they tell us a lot. A lot that's relevant in a witness. 
What's revealed is that Paul is a tested, sober, gifted, utterly brilliant. He is the most brilliant mind outside of the Lord in the first century at least, if not beyond. Thoroughly sane, passionate, humane, confident, yet broken and humble man. He's pastoral. He's judicious. He's wise. My point is this. I believe Paul. I find him entirely credible. Not only do I find him credible, I find Paul utterly compelling. All the atheists and skeptics in the world are lighter than a puff of smoke when weighed against this man's testimony. Just stack them up as high as you want and put Paul on the other side. He wins. And not simply his testimony, but the testimony of some six or seven hundred witnesses that this man adduces for us here. The witnesses verify the joyful, unbelievable truth. Jesus is risen. And it is the height of irrationality to deny it. It is nothing but sanity to affirm it. So believe the gospel. It is of first importance. And of first importance to the gospel of first importance is that Jesus has been raised and seen by many, 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 many faithful witnesses. Praise the Lord. Amen.